Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It is uh, good to be with you. Uh, my wife uh, is not able to be here today. She's out in Wellston, Oklahoma, meeting with some ladies that are on retreat. I would ask you to keep them in your prayer uh, at this time and uh, lift them up that the Holy Spirit would meet them in that time. Uh, we won't, I won't be able to be with you next week. Um, we are flying out on Friday uh, so that we can participate in a wedding in Indiana. And then on Sunday, we'll be celebrating the Feast of Trumpets with the Harvest Fellowship Church in Muncie, Indiana. I'm really excited about that. Well, to say I have a lot to share today is an understatement. So someone tell the youth workers, stretch it. All right, here we go. Uh, it has been so... Uh, I just love preaching and teaching from the book of Revelation because of what it does to me spiritually, personally. It just invigorates my soul and it encourages me. And so this morning, by way of introduction, I thought I really just want to give you a glimpse of where we've been. And I almost had a slide for you today. I was this close. And then I didn't do it, so I apologize for that. I'm not so good with the graphics. But here's what we've basically been trying to lay out as we go through this first chapter. The first thing we took a look at is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This, the idea that this book is a book of unveiling and revealing, a book of uncovering, which today uh, we're going to kind of see a little bit of irony uh, in that particular name. But it's the uncovering of truth, and that truth is none other than Yeshua the Messiah. Um, last week... We kind of jumped over a section to look at the apostolic prophet of the Revelation because not only is the message of the Revelation significant, but the manner in which the Lord is bringing it to us, we should also just be laser focused on that because that's a means of revelation as well. So we took time to talk about John, not just as an apostle, but as an apostolic prophet of the Revelation. Now today we're going to cover way too much. We're going to look at, try to carry on my little outline here with the A's. I want us to look at the authors of the Revelation, the anointed one of the revelation, the appointed time of the revelation, and then conclude very quickly with the amens of the revelation. Then once we come back after the holy days, we have one more message that will help us transition into chapters two and three as we look at the address or the audience of the revelation. Will you pray with me? Oh, Abba Father, generations upon generations have longed to understand your word, to receive this revelation for the season of life that they are in. And so today, Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you will open our hearts, those who are in this place today, those who join us online, and those who will someday watch this message, that even in that moment, your spirit will meet them in a powerful moment of unveiling the truth of who you are and how much you love us. Be with us this day, Father, and may all things said and done in this place bring glory and honor to our King and High Priest, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Okay, so my goal this morning is to try to bring out a, an overriding context of the giving of this revelation, because the one who sent it, uh, because who sent it and when it was sent is also a matter of great significance. Uh, it, 
it is a relevant revelation uh, for the saints of every generation, but it also points to a generation, a final generation, that will need its understanding and truth more than any other. So this morning I want to begin with Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and we're going to read down through eight verses uh, as we start off. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, and he made us into a kingdom priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this morning, I want us to begin by looking at the, uh, as I said, we're going to skip over the audience or the address. We're going to come back to them. But I want us to take time to think about the author of this revelation or authors. Either is actually true. John begins with a familiar greeting, except that it is way more than just a pleasantry. When apostle, a prophetic apostle of God says, grace and peace to you, He's not just wishing you a pleasantry. You know, I've, I've taken to doing this and it happened, a lot of people have taken to using this, oh, may you have a blessed day. Have you ever said that to somebody? Man, I hope your day is blessed. Sometimes we use that as code to identify that we're a believers to other people. But when the Bible says grace and peace to you, this is a prophetic truth because it describes exactly what God is about to give to those who love him and trust him. It's not a wishful, hopeful thought. It's a truth of the context in which genuine believers in Jesus live. We live in the context of grace and truth. Amen? That, that is our, that's our realm, that's our world. So it's not just a pleasantry, it's a reminder of our reality. We are the people who are saved by grace, who walk in grace, who are the bearers of the love and peace of God. And grace isn't just something I don't deserve. It's the very nature and character of God in whom I have placed all of my trust. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later as we see some, some of the other authors in this, that we don't just walk in grace and truth. We become manifestations of grace and truth because his spirit is within us, his countenance is upon us, and that's going to make a little bit more sense as we, as we move on. But I, I don't want to just read past that and not take time to remind us those two words identify who we are and the, the world in which we live. He is the God of hesed, grace, loving kindness, covenant loyalty. That is who he is and that is what he is. And in him, we live and move and have our being. You see, that's our reality. In the one who gives grace and truth and peace, that's because that's who he is. In him, we live and move and have our being. So that's my reality. What you see on the television every night, that is not your reality. That's a crazy show. This, and that's the nice way to say it. This is, I mean, this is my reality. This is my anchor. 
So John then clearly identifies who the real author of this revelation is, and it comes from a threefold identification. First, he says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. The revelation comes from the eternal one, the same one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and identified himself as Iyah Asher Iyah, I am that I am. There's an interesting thing that happens in this first section of Revelation, though, is that the, the order is kind of changed. The chronological order of saying that would be who was and is and is to come, and that's the order that is used in the worship around the throne. But here, for some reason, we are focused on the God, not just who was, he starts with who is. Why is that? Hope. Because the author that's writing this to me is not some God who was. This is the is God. This is the living eternal one right now who is totally aware of my now reality. I need a God of now. That's the God who is. And that gives me hope. Remember we've been talking about, this is a book that talks about how we're gonna be victorious, not about how we're gonna become victims. Secondly, he identifies the author as being from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And again, the, the order kind of changes here because normally we would, like we sang in the doxology at the beginning, we, we normally talk about the Father and then the Son and then the Holy Spirit. But you see what the difference here? Now we're talking about the sevenfold Spirit of God who is before the throne. We're going to explain that a little bit more, but it's obviously the Holy Spirit, and I'll explain that a little bit more in detail. Why change the order? Hope. Because even before you begin to read this revelation, you need to know that it comes from the same Spirit of God that fills and indwells you if you are a born-again, Spirit-filled believer. This is the God who is. This is the God of the sevenfold manifestation of God. And by the way, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. I get excited, I want to get ahead of myself. But this sevenfold spirit, this Holy Spirit, is the spirit that the Lord poured out into your life. And I mean, you know, I've gone into people's homes and, you know, sometimes you see a, a military person who, who got a nice letter from the commander in chief or something or did something heroic and we kind of frame those letters like, uh, this is pretty cool, look at this important person who sent me a letter. Yeah, I have one from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne. I win. I mean, the significance that he, this, that this, who he is, and he wants to send a letter to me, to you. This is a very personal thing, and you should take it as such. Why not just say the Holy Spirit? And by the way, when did the Holy Spirit become seven spirits? My friends, the revelation is both description and depiction of reality and truth. So let me take a play from the Jewish playbook and ask a couple of questions. How can the Holy Spirit be seven spirits? Maybe it will help if I change the question. How can three be one? How can one be three? Have you got that figured out yet? 
The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. So are we gonna stumble over the fact that the Holy Spirit is one and seven at the same time? You know, the one thing I love about the Jewish people, the way they approach the scriptures, we see something like this and we wanna fix it. We, we wanna wrestle with it. They see something like this and they just wanna stand back and worship it. Because it's a mystery. In fact, the, one of their mystical writings, which I don't recommend, I have to say this disclaimer every time to some crazy guy, because I mentioned the Zohar, which is from Kabbalah, which I do not recommend. Please do not send me letters or emails. It's an illustration. If you don't understand that, grow up and get over it. I may still have a little bitterness about that. But anyway, the point is that in the Zohar, they, they see this mystery. They even ask the question about God. How can three be one? And then they answer the question, how three can be one can only be understood by the help of the Holy Spirit. And then I want to run in there and say, yeah, but he's one and seven, seven and one. Figure that one out too. See, there's things in the scripture that God's not trying to get you to dissect. He's trying to get you to receive what he's delivering. Amen? You're going to understand a little bit more as we get further in. There is a reason why there's seven, and we'll talk about it. How can Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? This, God is the master at showing us things in such powerful ways. In order to understand this book, we're going to have to trust what we're being shown and not try to fix it or try to find some scientific way to reduce it. The most, most important thing I can point out is how important the role of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit of God is in bringing this revelation into the lives of the ones he's giving it to. Notice what John wants you to notice. They are before his throne. Revelation chapter four, verse five, repeats the truth, but gives us a description of this sevenfold spirit of God. Out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. <laughs> okay. So now we've added to the sevenfold spirit of God's holiness and now we're seeing it as seven lamps of fire and now we're being told these are the seven spirits of God. Now let me try to explain this to you. Imagine if you could take your personality, your character, all of your best traits and have each one of those traits stand in front of you as an individual. Uh, let me put it like this. If you were going through a certain difficulty in life and we brought up seven men of God that you knew and, and you, knew, you knew old Bob, Bob was gifted in discernment and you were in a season where you needed discernment. Who are you going to go to? Bob, I don't want to reduce the Holy Spirit to Bob, forgive me. Maybe you're in a, a season where you're dealing with fear and you know that, that John down here on the end, man, he just has the gift of courage. Nothing scares him. And when you're around him, he just inspires you to face what you're going to face. 
I remember calling my dad when I was a young man in ministry and I was having to do a funeral for a teenage boy, a track runner who, who got stung by a bee and ran into the middle of the track and died right there in front of the whole rest of the team. And I had to be the one to go after the team had come back to the school to tell him that they weren't able to, to resuscitate him. And, and then I was asked to do his funeral. I remember calling my dad and said, Dad, what do I do? I, they don't, nothing prepares you for this. And I'll never forget what my dad said. He says, you do what you're called to do when you're called to do it, son. My dad had the word of wisdom I needed for that moment. My point is that the sevenfold spirit of God is a sevenfold manifestation of his holiness that he sends forth when he sends the spirit. That's why some people are known for their wisdom, some are known for their courage, some are known for their faith. Some people have that, that, the, the spirit of the, the fear of the Lord. They just know how to get things in perspective. Is this helping? The sevenfold manifestation of who God is is responsible for bringing us this revelation. Now, this term before the throne is really cool because it literally comes from the Greek that means in the eye of God. Now, in Hebrew, we come across a phrase that you'll probably come across when you're studying, if you spend some time studying for Yom Kippur for the Day of Atonement, panim al panim, which means face to face. It's a phrase especially associated with two biblical moments. One, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That one day that he pierced the veil, went in, and stood before the Lord. Secondly, it's when Moses would stand before the Lord. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11 says, So Moses spoke to the Lord, panim al panim, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. I mean, that's incredible. But... Uh, the Bible's very clear, no man has seen God. So who was Moses looking at? A manifestation, probably Yeshua. The Greek translation of that Old Testament verse in the Septuagint uses an interesting phrase. It's, this, it's the term, it's the same one that we translate before the throne. You see, in Hebrew, we translate the Hebrew panim le panim to mean face to face, but in Greek, we translate it eye to eye. Isn't that interesting? Those, when we talk about how two people, two men stand together and they face each other and they stand how? Face to face, eye to eye. Interesting that the Greek highlights that idea of the eyes. Keep that in mind because it's so significant what we're doing. Why? Because God wants to show you something. We serve a God who sees. He sees what is, he sees what was, he sees what will be. From his throne, the Holy Spirit is sent to serve the saints of God. We're going to see just how intimately aware the Lord is when we see him walking through the lampstands. Before we look at the third author, we need to understand why these seven spirits, I think I've already touched, I got ahead of myself, why these seven spirits. These are the seven spirits of God, and we've talked about this. This is the fullness of God's character. But I want you to remember the message of Pentecost, Shavuot. 
You know, a lot of times we think of Acts chapter 2 and that message as being all about conversion, calling people to accept Jesus, and that's true. But at the end of the message, the real point of that of Peter's message is to answer the question, where is this thing coming from, this, this thing that we're, we're seeing and we're hearing with our own eyes and ears, this outpour, where's it coming from? And this is what Peter says, he says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just one through three, though. No. The Holy Spirit of God, the full fold, seven manifestation of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured forth, which you both see and hear. I'm just going to, I'm sorry, I'm just going to things I just got to say. If you're in an assembly that does not exalt Yeshua, get out. Because you will never find the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, present in people who want to exalt themselves instead of our King and Master. And, and I say this, I'm sorry, I mean, I've seen, we've seen movements who have suddenly woke up and said, hey, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, he's waiting for you to exalt Yeshua. You get back to that, you'll start experiencing the Holy Spirit again. Because he is the one who is exalted to the right hand of God, and he is the one who has received the Holy Spirit. So the third author that John identifies as Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the one who's in whose hand is the fullness of the Spirit of God, the one who is filled with the sevenfold Spirit of God as described in Isaiah, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He is fully vested with the all of God. And when you look at him, you see the Father. John then gives three descriptions of the holiness of our Messiah. As we look at these, I want us to kind of transition into the next section. As we look at the anointed one of the Messiah. John first describes him as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. You know, we just get so casual with those terms. You know, some people, I don't say Jesus Christ, I say Messiah, Yeshua. Well, good for you. Do you know what it means? It means he's the anointed one, sanctified, set apart, chosen by God. And he is the one that is bringing this revelation to us. How does John describe him? First of all, he is the faithful witness. The Greek word for witness is the word from which we get our English word martyr. And and, you know, we can talk about Yeshua as a martyr, but it's really kind of incomplete. Because when you hear the word martyr, most of the time you think about somebody, some great story of someone who died for the cause of Christ. But when you think of Yeshua, his witness isn't just that he died. It's that he came and lived and died and then what? Rose again. His witness as the faithful witness trumps everybody. Secondly, he is the first, which leads to the second description, he is the firstborn of the dead. He's the first fruit of the resurrection brought forth on the divinely appointed time of the celebration of first fruits. Number three, he is the foremost king of kings. He is the archon. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we could, I could get off on all kinds of stuff on this, but he is the next level king of Judah, the forever king, the eternal king. John then transitions from 
that which is from him to that which is rightfully his, to that which is to him. Do you remember Genesis 49.10, the prophecy of Shiloh, the tabernacling presence of God who tabernacled among us yet was rejected by his own, yet to him shall be the obedience of the nations. That's what Shiloh means, the one to whom it belongs. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. But John describes not just what he is, but what he has done for us. Why? Hope. Because he is our hope to him who has loved us. And we sang about that today. And again, we, we, we sing these songs since we're little children. And I think we forget what it means to be loved passionately, actually, intimately, aggressively by the Lord. You know, when I was in, still ministering in Wells and the kids, you know, we, we just, the, their anthem was just the, the reckless love of God. And I know they're using reckless as a synonym for lavish. We won't fuss with their wording right now. But they're just trying to express this lavishness of God's love. It's not a little bit. He has loved us. He has freed us, released us from our sins. We sang about that. He has released us both from the control of sin and the condemnation of sin by his blood, by the life he gave to redeem us. All with the divine purpose of the Father in mind to make us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him, Shiloh, to the one whom it belongs, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. My friends, the revelation is to us from the one who loved us and freed us and gave everything for us to make us a kingdom of priests. And now I'm going to write a letter and tell you how pathetic you are and how you're all just going to be victims. It stinks to be you from him who loves us and freed us and filled us. This isn't about fear. This is about trusting who he is and what he has done for us. And he wants to make us a kingdom of priests. Later, these seven spirits of God are also going to be described as seven priest angels. What do priests do? They stand in the presence of our king before his throne, face to face, eye to eye, to serve him forever. We are being made into a kingdom whose saints and citizens are being conformed to the image. We are being transformed into the image of the Son. That's one of those four things that God predetermined before he ever created the world, that I will conform them to the image of my Son. And we're being made into a kingdom of priests. Why? Because just like those seven spirit angels that are manifestations of the holiness of God, that's exactly what God is doing for you. If there's spirit beings, living beings, who are manifestations of God in heaven, then there are also supposed to be manifestations of the holiness and character of God on the earth, and that's you. That's not being a victim. That's being a victor. The seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of his holiness, is working in us to transform us into the image of his Son.
as the seven spirits that stand before the throne of God are image bearers, so are we. Now, church, please hear this. We are not a kingdom that is going to bow down before the image of the fallen one. We are a kingdom that is being made to stand in the presence of the faithful one because we bear his image. We are image bearers of the anointed one. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember a man went to talk to my dad one time. He was an elder from a church. And he was trying to tell him that, you know, the leadership, they had got some misinformation about what I believed and they were fixing to come against me. And they kind of wanted to know what, how my dad was going to respond. And my dad said, well, I'll tell you this. He said, there's not a one of you that's even remotely capable of standing toe-to-toe with Brent, biblically or theologically. Now, that's daddy talk, okay? I'm not saying, this is daddy talk. I'll let my daddy say whatever my daddy wants to say about me. And when my daddy starts talking big about me, what happens? And then he said this, but know this, you come against my son, you come against me. Yeah, he wasn't expecting that. When my father starts speaking of me in such terms, I'm not going to lie, man, I'm... He has made you, the Father is telling you, I am creating you in the image of the Son to bear my image before the world as the seven spirits bear his image before the throne. The church bears his image before the world. There's there's some puffing up should be happening right now. Not in earthly pride. But your Abba is telling you how much he loves you. How did this ever become about fear? Listen as John continues the context of his receiving the revelation. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. I want to take time to quickly establish that we're about to go on a treasure hunt. And and I love this. I want us to transition to talk a little bit about the appointed time of the revelation. Now, keeping Yeshua as the anointed one in mind as we do so, John has already identified part of that anointing as the archon of the ages, the ruler of the kings of the earth. But now he's going to shift and we're going to start seeing him not just the anointed one as the king, but our anointed one as the high priest. It is in that context that John is going to see Jesus as this moment of revelation begins. So let's just take a quick look at this. John says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So immediately we assume, oh, must be Sunday, right? Because for 1,700 years or so, uh, the body of Christ has said the Lord's day is Sunday. And then a lot of people said, no, 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 it's not. Careful. Providence may pull a little prank on you. 
Whatever John means by this phrase, it is relevant to the context of both when he receives the revelation and what the revelation is actually going to reveal. So we have to look at this phrase, the Lord's Day. In the Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, uh, we understand that, uh, you know, we call it the Lord's Day. The word Lord is always capitalized, which means the real word there is the four-letter Hebrew name of God, yud heh vav the sacred name of God. Now, you can't take the sacred name of God in Hebrew and make it possessive. You can't do in Hebrew what we do in English. If I want to make something Brent's, I just add apostrophe S. You can't do that with the yud heh vav You can't make it possessive, which is kind of cool because he already owns everything. It's kind of understood, right? In Greek, you can make the word kyrios or Lord possessive if you use the genitive case. So what's going on here? John is not a Greek or English prophet. He's a Hebrew prophet. And in Hebrew, the Lord's day would be written the day of the Lord, Yom yud heh The day of the Lord is actually the day of Yahweh, and, is a, and it's a pervasive theme in almost all of the prophetic books. Let me quickly share three ways in which this term is used, the day of the Lord. One, it's, it, people refer to it as judgment day. Secondly, it's the day of appearing. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is going to use the day of the Lord as a synonym for the parousia. That's a Greek word that means the second presence of Christ. Not the second coming, the second presence. When we talk about the second coming, we're not talking about him coming and going. We're talking about him coming and being. That's what the word, what it means. That's what parousia means. And Paul uses the day of the Lord and the parousia synonymously. How do, I, how do I know that? Because he uses the same description like a thief in the night for both. All right? Someday if we have time, we'll, we'll take time to go there. So before I share the third usage, let's remember what I said at the beginning of our study. We should expect to encounter terminology from the Torah, the tabernacle, and the times of the Lord. And here we have a good example. I wanted to understand when this revelation took place. And so here was my assumption. And I openly admit that I went with a bias. My bias is what I call the modus operandi of God, how God has always done it. And how God has always done it, if it's a major act of redemption or revelation, it is always associated with one of the seven Moedim, the seven festivals of the Lord. And so I got to thinking about that, and I got to thinking about the magnitude of this revelation. Guys, there's nothing like it. I mean, what about Daniel? What about Ezekiel? Those are amazing, overwhelming. But you know what? Those are also narrative histories. The revelation is not narrative history. It's all prophecy. It doesn't stop and go back and start talking about what happened back when. The whole thing is forward-looking. There's no history to it. For God to give a revelation of this magnitude on any old day would be outside of how God works, meaning it would not bear his fingerprint. 
One of the ways we know that Yeshua is the Messiah is that everything he came and said and did fit the pattern established by the seven Moedim. He died on Passover. He was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He rose again on the first fruits as the, as the first fruits of the resurrection. He ascends to the Father and pours out the Holy Spirit on Shavuot, on Pentecost, on the anniversary of the giving of the law. He writes the law in our heart by the Spirit of God. You get the point. For God to do something this big and not do it in that context would not fit the description of the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I freely admit I have a bias. And so I wanted to understand, Lord, when, when, did, he, when did this happen? My first assumption, because of John's hearing the voice like a trumpet, was that John was receiving this on the day of Yom Teruah. I mean, we think about you know, the trumpet call of God and the return of Christ. Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. And then I came across some information and I thought, well, I must have been wrong about that. And I was, and I wasn't. Ooh, we have a good mystery. How could you be wrong and right at the same time? I'm about to blow your mind. <laughs> What I did come across was that this is also a term for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. A day so holy in Judaism, they simply refer to it as the day. Now, strengthening my conclusion that this revelation was actually given on Yom Kippur was the description we get from John when he turns and sees the voice of uh, Yeshua speaking to him, and he turns and he sees him, and uh, I'm worried about time, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. He turns and sees Jesus dressed in the garments of the high priest. Then I turned, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking with me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been heated to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living when I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And then he goes on to command John to write what he's seen and heard. And we'll come back to that in future weeks. John hears Yeshua like the sound of a trumpet sounded on Rosh Hashanah. But when he turns to see Yeshua, he sees him dressed in the four white garments worn by the high priest. But the high priest didn't wear four white garments, except on one day of the year. There's no description of the ephod, there's no description of, of the, the bell, just four white garments the garments the high priest would wear when he went in panim al panim, face to face, eye to eye with God. On the day of atonement, the day of covering. Well, here's the irony. The day of atonement was also a day of revealing. For it was on that day that God revealed to the high priest the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. There's a lot of rabbinic traditions that go along with that. I won't go into that right now. 
But just know it was at this day that the high priest found out what the spiritual condition of the people really was. The day of covering was also a day of uncovering because it was revealing the truth of what was in the lives of the people. Please hear me when I say this. There is nothing in the revelation that causes apostasy. But the revelation will expose apostasy. And when we get to the chapters 2 and 3 in the seven letters, what is our great high priest doing? Speaking directly to the seven churches about the truth of their spiritual condition. So when was this revelation given? And why is that so important? And is there a way for us to know? Well, it's important for a couple reasons. It's because one group wants to place the date of John receiving the revelation somewhere between 45 and 68 AD. That would make it before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And other people want to place it based on the tradition of the early church fathers in the year AD 96, one year after Emperor Domitian began using exile as a means of punishment. Now, there's a lot that I could say about that, and I could get kind of testy about it, but my point today is not to win an argument. Here's what I believe. I'm not looking to win an argument. I'm looking to find the fingerprint of God. If either one of those is true, the fingerprint of God should be... If if I'm right, then we should be able to find the fingerprint of God, meaning... He fulfilled, he gave it in the context that he gave all of the revelations in the context of the Moedim. So we have to start asking some questions. Here's John, here's what we know. He is a Hebrew prophet in exile, receiving revelation on Yom Kippur. Have I ever seen a prophet in the past who received revelation of God on the Day of Atonement. Is there a pre-existing pattern of this? And the answer is, oh, yes, there is. I can't go through all the technical stuff with you today, but eventually I'll get it in a book. (laughs) Ezekiel's prophecy sets the pattern. The sages of Israel used the information provided in Ezekiel, the first few verses of Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 3, 1 through 3, and this is what they determined, that Ezekiel's first revelation occurred on the Day of Atonement. Now the second one I want to call your attention to, and I do want to read a portion of it to you, is from Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. Remember, Ezekiel was one of the first ones to go into the exile, uh, the first exile of Judah, or yeah, Judah into Babylon, and Ezekiel was one of the first wave to go. Listen to what he writes in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. And there's an anomaly in this text you need to be listening for. Something that's just, when you hear it, you might go, well, that's not right. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, 
In the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there in the visions of God. He brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you, declare it to the house of Israel what you see. I ask you today, do we know, well, let me back up. The sages also, by using the information in the text, discern that this 25th year of Judah's first exile is none other than a year of Jubilee. Is there a Moedim? Is there a festival that uh, happens once every 50 years? Yes. It's the year of Jubilee, the festival of the Lord that is the ultimate picture of the end of the exile and the return to paradise. May I suggest to you that we have indeed seen this before. May I also suggest to you that the revelation we're studying given to John may be following the exact same pattern. Let me explain why. Ezekiel is given two prophetic visions to record. The first one is about the exile. 25 years later, the second, while he is in exile, is about the restoration of God's house and the end of the exile. But did you hear the anomaly in the verse verse that I read? Let me read it again. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, let me just use the Hebrew because I'm around messianics and you should know this. At Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, however you want to pronounce it. On the 10th of the month, all God's people said, that ain't right. What do you mean? We are a week away from celebrating Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, which is also known as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. And we will celebrate it on a day that on the Hebrew calendar is the first day of the month of Tishri, the first day. Because 10 days later, something else happens. What happens 10, 10 days later? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And Yom Kippur is not Rosh Hashanah. Am I right? No. I'm kind of right. You see, once every 50 years, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, does not begin, the head of the year doesn't begin on the first of Tishri. In a jubilee year, it begins on the 10th day of the month, the day of atonement, when the two become one. Come on, church. Are you getting some revelation? Ezekiel's revelation pattern. This is crazy. 
Does Ezekiel's pattern fit the revelation? Well, the traditional dating, I told you, uh, one of the views of when it was received was AD 96. Ezekiel's second revelation was given 25 years into Judah's first exile in a year when, uh, of Jubilee when Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur become one. So let's look at some history. In 70 AD, Titus destroys the temple on the ninth day of Av. One year later, not 70 AD, one year later in 71 AD on the 9th of Av, Judah goes into her second exile. 25 years later into Judah's second exile, a Hebrew prophet in exile is receiving revelation of the end of the exile, the house of God on the day of atonement, which is the head of the year and probably the year of Jubilee. A boom. Now, I'm not, I don't want to waste my life arguing with people about when this revelation was given, but when I find the fingerprint of God, game, set, match. How can we ignore that? The pattern fits. So today we've looked at the author of the revelation, the anointed high priest and king of the revelation, the appointed time, but let me close by going back to a couple amens of the revelation. To him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. First, amen. The second one, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. My friends, amen, I've said this before, is not just what you agree with, it's the place you choose to stand. Emunah, the word for faith, the word for standing in Hebrew, same root. Faith is where I stand. My amen is the thing I choose to believe. This revelation should not scare people. It will not scare people who know that they have been loved and released from their sins by his blood and made into a kingdom of priests to be image bearers of the king. This is not a revelation that will cause fear in the hearts and faces of those who are image bearers of the king. Amen. That's where I stand. Before I read anything else, that's where I stand. Secondly, John says, behold, that's a command to see, understand that we are supposed to keep this revelation. We are commanded to behold. We are commanded to see what John is showing us. And what are we seeing? He is coming again with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierce him, all of the tribes will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen, that's where I stand. That is my faith. That is the truth which sets my heart free from fear that changes this book from being about being victims to being victors. It's what gives me the courage to go out there and face this world even though the nightly news before scared me to death. 
Because that's not my reality. My reality is the sevenfold spirit of God that brings me the truth and pours out his grace, his power, his mercy, his discernment, his knowledge, his counsel, his strength, his power. That's my reality. And that is where I stand. We worship him because he is Shiloh, the one to whom everything is due. We worship him for what he's done. We remain faithful to him for what he is coming to do to complete the good work that his spirit has begun in us to carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? If we could all rise, please. said, tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you shall bless the children of Yisrael. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.